Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. It is a thought, and I read some articles and I saw some things on social media, and in lieu of the scripture today and the theme of maybe a sermon series over the next few weeks or months about perspective, imagine all that will transpire in 11 years. I mean, that's just a good bit of time to think of all that will happen in the next decade. How lives will change, how families will change, churches will change, America will change, government will change, the world will change. Some of our little babies will be teenagers, some of our teenagers will have children, which is scary. (laughs) Some of our eight-year-olds will be driving, which is horrifying. But a lot will transpire. A lot will take place in the next 10 years. A lot will take place in the next year. There'll be a lot of change. There'll be a lot of phone calls. There'll be a lot of doctor's visits that will change people's lives, that will change people's families. And um, I adopted the word perspective several years ago as maybe a potential I don't really make resolutions because we all fail miserably statistically on those. So why build yourself up to just let yourself down? Um, this is the only suit I could find in my closet today that actually made me not look like the cow I am. <laughs> but then it's gray, and you're not supposed to wear gray if you're fat. Some people are looking like, did I choose wrong today? I don't know. I joked earlier and said, the message would be five ways to lose weight and eat all you want. People would buy that book, depending on the price. It has nothing to do with the message other than life is really about perspective. Um, now, I could turn and say another joke there about weight and looks and things like that. And Well, if you feel like you look thin, then good for you. That's your perspective. (laughs) Everyone else seems to think you can't fit through the door. But other than that, (laughs) it's how you feel. But we don't want to write that book. But how we view things in life really makes a difference in our life, our perspective in life. And so over the next few weeks at least, I want to look at this word perspective with the idea of seeing life through a biblical worldview. We see things differently as a believer than the world. And so we ought to understand that and act on it. One news story appears. The unbeliever may look at it in fear, in agony, become depressed, literally. The depression numbers in America are astronomical. But a believer ought to be able to see the same news story and respond differently because we see things differently than the world. So if you have 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's stand, if you would, as we honor God's word. Absolute truth, good for doctrine, teaching for reproving us, correcting us, instructing us in all righteousness. If it's not true, pack up, let's go home. We're wasting our time. But it is absolute truth. Absolute truth for us to know and live by. And in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing this letter, a at least the second time. Some people believe this is the third letter because this church still just hasn't gotten it. He started the church. He writes to the church. He tries to lead the church. 
And then he hears word that they're just not um, up to par. Still a lot of babies in the church. A lot of people not doing what God had called them to do in the church. And so he writes this letter, and historians and scholars will tell us that it wasn't a well-received letter. Hey, we got a letter. Yay, Paul wrote us again. It was like, oh, no, Paul wrote us again. We're losers. <laughs> they weren't necessarily losers because that's not politically correct to say. But they weren't winning spiritually because they weren't doing what God had called them to do and what Paul had written for them to do. Verse 16, and trying to be a student of the word, we won't just start with wherefore. We'll talk about what was there before. Paul says, wherefore... Henceforth, from now on, know we no man after the flesh. We don't know any man after the flesh, which literally means from a worldly perspective. From this point on, we don't know any man, any person, woman, man, boy or girl, from a worldly perspective, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh from a worldly perspective, yet now, from now on, henceforth, we know him no more. We don't know him like that anymore. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new, King James says, creature, which most of us can relate to. It's new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. What a passage. And all things, Paul says, are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, or in other words, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now, when, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Do you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. God, no doubt there are many in this room that believe it is absolute truth. And today, I pray that this message, your word, will open our eyes, open our hearts to what it really means to have new life and how our perspective changes with new life. May we as believers be disciplined to see things the way you would have us see things. May we have a truly biblical worldview for all that we encounter in this life. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. With the, with the thought of perspective, I want us to look today at this quite familiar passage. At least a couple verses are very familiar, and maybe we never really understood the context, but look at this passage with the thought of and the idea that new life brings new perspective. I think it's safe to say one of the most difficult, at least I speak for myself, one of the most difficult challenges as a believer is to live a life separated from the world. Now some of you spiritual popes have got it under control and you just, you don't have any trouble with the things of the world. And for that, we applaud you. Everybody look around at the pious Pharisees in here, and let's give them a round of applause, because they have mastered separating themselves from the world. Jesus told us through his prayer in John chapter 17, and this is something that can be covered really, really simply in most churches. Uh, there are some churches that have become, I don't, this is going to sound mean, cults when it comes to separating themselves from the world. Cults might be a strong word, but they're minimum Pharisees who have developed their own laws to show the world that they are different from the world. Now, y'all are looking 
inquisitively at me, do you need examples or are we good? We're good? We're gonna prove how different we are from the world and you must do this, 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 and this. Well, can you tell me where that's in scripture? No, it doesn't matter. There's a good generic example for it. But if you do this, you dress like this, you act like this, you cut your hair like this, then it will prove that you're different from the world. I never understood how cutting your hair a certain way above a neck or above, or above a collar or above an ear proved that you were separated from the world when like certain groups shaved their heads. They must be separate from the world as well. That's very elementary, I know. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 makes it clear what, what God and what his word means when he talks about being separate from the world. He said in his prayer, you can find it in John 17, I pray for them, I pray for my disciples, I pray for those to come, uh, not that you remove them from the world, but that you keep them while they're in the world. You protect them while they're in the world. I have given them thy word and the world has hated them, he said, because they are not of the world. Even as I, Jesus said, I am not of the world. I pray that you should not take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. That's a great message on separation, sanctification in the Christian life. That doesn't mean that we live in a bubble when we separate ourselves from the world and we never come in contact with the world. Now Jesus understood that believers were in the world. But his prayer is that they would not be of the world, that they would not take on the worldly practices, the same thing the Jews, the, the Israelites suffered from. They were in the world, but God didn't want them to be of the world, but they liked the world and they'd like to do the things that the world did. They were challenged, just like we're challenged, to live a separated life from the world. It's hard to do when you go to school with the world, when you work with the world, when you go to shopping with the world when you fill in the blank with the world. Doesn't mean don't work, don't go to school. Now some of you are saying, well you could homeschool, I know. You could private school, I know. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't go to public school. It doesn't mean you shouldn't work a public job. Doesn't mean you should only do Amazon and have them deliver so that you can stay away from the world. There might be a worldly deliver guy or girl. Just leave it there. I can't come in contact with you, please. Just stay there. But it is a challenge. And we have to understand that when Jesus talked about the world and when Paul talked about the world, he wasn't necessarily talking about the people of the world. He was talking about the systems of the world, the perspectives of the world, the philosophies of the world, the way the world thinks. We don't think like the world. We don't see things the way the world. The world, the antichrist system, those who are lost, those unbelievers who think this way, act this way, respond this way. We are to be separated, we are to be sanctified, we are to be different from the world. Yeah, we're in the same restaurant with people who are of the world who think differently, but yet we are different. We don't respond like they do. Oh, restaurant, that's a good example right there. Is that a rabbit hole or is that a tangent? I think it's applicable to the message. When you have a terrible waiter or waitress, quiet. <laughs> Christians respond to them differently than the world. Some of the most embarrassing times I've had where I wanted to crawl under a table is when some so-called Christians at a table acted like they were not Christian because the waitress or waiter was not very good at their job. I found out a long time ago, most of those people doing that didn't go to college and didn't have 25 years experience to be the best at their job. They don't really care that much. I kind of go into the game knowing that. They're not getting a tip from me. What kind of worldly, ungodly philosophy is that? Oh, that's, that's money and all, the, all in the same sentence. Just stop. 
I heard a pastor who I look up to years and years and years ago say, I don't tip based on the waiter or waitress's performance. I tip based on my character. I'll stop there, but I've had examples of people who I came in contact with in public that I didn't know from Adam's house cat, but they knew who I was. And I didn't know they knew who I was. And that wakes me up to say, I better tip and I better be nice to everybody. <laughs> By the way, it didn't take that for me to know I need to tip and be nice to everybody. God told me to do that. Be nice. Be kind. We're not to love the world, John says in 1 John. That doesn't mean love people. It means love the world's system, love the world's philosophies, love the world's perspectives. We're not to love the world, neither the things that are in the world. Anybody at least acknowledging that I'm on to something that we struggle with this? For as any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, John says. For all that's in the world is lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abides forever. James, in a very kind way, called Christians who were struggling with this and, and um, partaking in worldly things, adulterers and adulteresses. You're cheating on God because you're not separating yourself from the world and you're desiring the things of the world and you're thinking like the world and you're acting like the world and you're voting like the world. Way past time for that, I know. But we are to view the world differently. Biblical worldview. What is a biblical worldview? It's seeing things, seeing life through the lens of Scripture. Everybody has an opinion. If you don't know that by now, breaking news. Everyone has an opinion. And thanks to social media, you can know everybody's opinion instantly 12 times a day. News story happens, everybody's got an opinion. What do well, they think about it? Twitter, what do they think about it? And we're on Twitter, we're on the news, we're on the look, what, what, what's he say about it? What's she say about it? Everybody has an opinion. Everybody has a worldview. But as believers, this is, this is gonna, our worldview gets a little narrower. We can't think like she thinks or like he thinks, or we can't amen what he or she amens or says if it doesn't line up with the word of God. That's a biblical worldview, looking at the world through the lens of scripture. And here, here's the good news. There's only one right answer. There's only one right response. If we're all singing from the same songbook, and we can agree. Y'all look so awake and intrigued. Where is he going? I don't know. Just winging it right now. <laughs> we live in a, a messed up age and generation to where all these opinions have crept into the church. And it's, I've said this before, and I usually get the most odd looks and the cold shoulders after this. But we're allowing stuff in the church that God has no part of because we're trying to be inclusive and sweet and loving to everybody. Yes, we love everybody. Listen, I've seen my phone, I look at it often. Loving every human being is not the same as loving every human doing. There's a distinct difference. I can love the person that is anti-Christ. They say, well that's a strong word. It is a strong word, but if you're anti-Bible, you're anti-Christ. Jesus himself said, you're either for me or you're against me. And you can't be for me today and against me tomorrow. And so when someone has a, an anti-Bible opinion about an issue, we separate from that. We can shake their hand, we can work with them, we can go to school with them, but we don't agree or we don't allow that philosophy to penetrate and perpetuate itself within God's church. Now, there's a healthy way and a healthy balance. I don't know how many have found it yet. 
But I have, I have determined that if we're preaching the gospel and the 100% Bible, and we love the world, but don't love the world's doings, every person, and I mean this honestly, and this is my desire for this church, that every person ought to always feel welcome coming into this church. And if they don't, and I've said this, and it sounds really bold, but I am still the pastor, if I find out that someone has made someone feel unwelcomed here, I will confront them and we will have a talk because it's unacceptable. But when they come in and you come in and you may be here today and you find yourself in that position and you sit in a pew and the scripture is open and it's preached by God's word and not by man's opinion and you feel uncomfortable, it's not because something we, we did. That's the plan. Matter of fact, there's a lot of Christians that know they're Christian, and when the word of God is preached, feel uncomfortable sometimes. Maybe right now, because we're talking about this whole world issue. That's just how it happens. All scripture is given by the Spirit of God. Good for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. I mean, there were many times I lined up for correction in my house and said, give me more. <laughs> and if it didn't hurt, you didn't have the audacity to turn around and say, I didn't hurt. Maybe once you did. <laughs> I think that might have happened a time or two at my house. Maybe yours, the way it sounds. Did it ever not hurt and you act like it did? So we think about perspective. The actual English definition for perspective is the capacity to view things in their true relation or relative importance. I want us to look at the Word of God as far as we can get today. And look at this text where Paul describes what I, what I call and what theologians would call two doctrinal realities that equip us as believers with a new perspective. The first is regeneration. The second will be reconciliation. And they're cousins, at least. But let's look at regeneration as we look at the first few verses. Now, I wish, as I studied this passage, I wish God in his um, inspiration would have switched verse 17 and 16. But he didn't, and it doesn't help my outline. So I want us to first look at the regenerative or the regenerate perspective. We think about regeneration, and I'll talk about that more because God didn't write it the way he should have, and he put 16 before 17. Everybody understands that's a joke, Okay. Just messed up my outline. It's fine. I'll live. Paul, uh, we'll look at what regeneration is, which is basically, basically salvation. It's a transformation that takes place. In, in the previous verses, Paul, had, Paul is in this second letter trying to, if you will, justify his ministry. Not just justify his ministry, but his call by God and his purpose for writing so in, in, in 2 Corinthians, you'll see a lot of persuasive terminology, if you will, where Paul is trying to convince them, hey, you need to listen to me because I am from God and I'm giving you what God wants you to hear. And if you live by it, things change for the good. If you don't, I'm writing you another letter. And so in, in, this, in these first few chapters, Paul trying to confirm who he is and his message He acknowledges who he was and the transformation that had taken place in his life after he had experienced regeneration. It's the parent who's writing or who's telling their child based on the wisdom and the understanding of what happened to them. I, I find myself often, and I'm somewhat sarcastic at times, you may have figured that out. It's a gift. But Children who like to tell you how to do things or why to do things, and they don't understand that they're really trying to tell you how stupid you are as a parent. And you're sitting there thinking, I've done this more times than you've got socks in your drawer. I've been there, done it. I know the response, I know the results. I've made that stupid decision, I know the results. 
I've made the good decision, I know it, and now we're teaching our children, this is the decision you should make, but they look at you as if you were an alien and you've never experienced life on earth, right? It's all right, they need to know that we know that, and it's all right, it's not a secret. Shouldn't be telling them that right now, we know. We were the same way, I was the same way, you were the same way, to your parents. We didn't do it as often and aggressively as some of these kids do to us. Because child abuse used to be legal. (laughs) And we know that. We know that. It wasn't legal then, we just weren't bold enough to call somebody. And our parents would say, call them, call them. (laughs) You say that today, they will, some of them will. Be careful. So Paul is writing from a regenerate perspective, and he's writing about a regenerate perspective, and there's so much here. I knew I wouldn't get done with all I wanted to get done, Um, but let's look at verses 9 and 10 where we back up. In the same same chapter, in chapter 5, Paul reassuring the church of his authoritative message of the gospel, he noticed there hasn't been spiritual growth like God had planned and like he had planned to see. In verse nine and 10, he says, wherefore we labor, Paul's talking about he and the other leaders of the church, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. That's, that's Paul's goal in life, to be accepted of God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that that he has done, whether good or bad. Oh, that's a good 20 minute sermon right there. But we're gonna all give account for the deeds we've done in our body, both good and bad. Believers will stand before the judgment, not the great white throne judgment, silence again, but we will all give an account for the deeds we've done in our body, both good and bad. Paul knew that, think about, think about this. Paul knew that and he knew the deeds he had done in his body, both good and bad. And because he is now regenerate, he's born again. Oh, I'm using my language for later. He's been saved, he's been transformed. He knows his desire is to, when he stands before God, to be accepted for all that he has done good for him. Not to get to heaven, but after he's been to heaven, when he stands before God, gonna give an account. Oh, let's just stop and let that kind of marinate through our spiritual bodies on the first day of the new year. And may it motivate us to know, like Paul, hey, I'm gonna give an account for the deeds I've done in my body. So Paul says, my desire is to be accepted of him. Here's a good New Year's resolution, to live a life this year that's acceptable by God. That covers a lot of ground, doesn't it? Well, should I do this? Not acceptable to God. Should I gain 10 pounds? He probably wouldn't like that. Should I be healthy? He probably would. See how it works, all, it does all the things. Should I witness this person or not? What would God do? Covers all the grounds. Paul's desire was to be pleasing. Paul's desire was to be acceptable. He understood that his conversion had changed his perspective. Listen, and, and, and maybe we've never seen this before, but Paul's conversion, his regeneration, changed his perspective of man and of Jesus. That's what the passage says. He says, wherefore, from this point on, know we, no man after the flesh. That's, that's kind of difficult. We wouldn't say it or write it that way. We know no one, no man from this point on, Paul says, from a worldly perspective. The reality is most of us only know people from a worldly perspective. Now, as a believer, we should now look at them and the world and the people of the world differently. This is what Paul says. Paul says, I used to look at people from a worldly perspective, from a human perspective, after the flesh. Paul was a pretty powerful guy. He was an authority. He was educated. He was most likely wealthy. He was better than anybody else in the world's eyes. And in his eyes, because he only saw things through the flesh. Paul was a persecutor of the church, but he was also a leader within his political party, if you will. He was better than anybody at anything. 
And he would probably have told you that if you would have asked him. And everybody in town would have known that Paul was the guy. But then Paul got saved on the road to Damascus. And his life changed. His spiritual life changed. And his perspective changed. And he said, from this point on, I don't look at people as, uh, Curtis Parker used to say, big eyes and little U's. I look at people as, this is as simple as it is, lost or saved. In Christ or not in Christ. And what a challenge to us today to look at people as lost or saved, believers and unbelievers. It's a challenge in the church. It's a challenge in, the, in life for us to be worldly in our views of other people. Any at least holy grunts? Whether it's race, whether it's religion, whether it's political affiliation, whether it's socioeconomic background, we like to subdivide and divide and subdivide and determine. And that's how the world looks at, that's the perspective, that's an earthly, worldly perspective. And Paul said, from this point on, I don't see people like that. I see people as lost or saved. I no longer look at them after the flesh. His perspective had changed of man, but then in the last part of verse 16, his perspective of Jesus had changed. He says, uh, from this, I don't do this anymore, though we have known Christ after the flesh, now, from henceforth, from now on, we know him no more. We don't know him like that anymore. So if you don't know Christ after the flesh, how do you know Christ? After the Spirit. Because he had a radical, regenerative transformation on the road to Damascus. Before his transformation, he saw Jesus as a man. He saw Jesus as a problem. He saw Jesus as a political hurdle. He saw Jesus as a political roadblock. He saw him as detrimental to um, Judaism. He saw him as detrimental to the, the elites of that day. He persecuted Jesus. He persecuted believers. Why do you think Jesus shows up and says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Because he had a worldly, fleshly opinion of who Jesus was. That's a good time to be reminded of Jesus' conversation with the disciples. Matthew chapter 16 in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus brings them up to this idol-worshiping mountain. And he asked the question at really the peak of his ministry while um, Jesus is the, the number one trending topic on Twitter. And he says, who do men say that I am? And they say, some say you're John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And Jesus turns to them and says, but who do you say that I am? There's a different perspective from the world who Jesus is and who Jesus is to a believer. Paul went from a persecutor of the church to a, a propagator of the gospel. He went from uh, persecuting Jesus to, in essence, praising Jesus. See, there was a different perspective of who Jesus was. He says, I no longer look at Jesus how I used to look at him. I look at him as the gospel, the savior, the one that I'm supposed to be sharing with you. And so we have a regenerate perspective and then there's a regenerate position in verse 17. See how this would have helped out if it would have been written differently? Because once you're a regenerate person or position, then you have a regenerate perspective. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, stop. We know this verse, we've read this verse, we quote this verse. It's probably the number one verse quoted when someone gives a testimony. If anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. And now we understand the context. Paul is talking about life before Christ, BC, life after Christ, AC, if you want to figure that out, before conversion, after conversion. There is a distinct difference. And Paul says, I am now, or if any man is in Christ, he is in a different position, the regenerate position. Therefore, shares how this reality is manifest in the life of a believer. How is this perspective, this changed perspective, manifest in the life of a believer? If any man is 
in Christ. He is in union with Christ. There's so much to say about that. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter eight. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. That's a lost person. Those that are in the flesh. But you are not in the flesh, believers. You are in the spirit, if so that the spirit of God dwells in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Interesting that the same Paul wrote Romans chapter eight as writes Romans chapter five, or first to second Corinthians chapter five. It is essential for the regenerate person, the the position of regeneration, if you will, to understand that we are in Christ. That is our position in Christ. There literally is a two-hour sermon there, but we don't have time certainly for that. So if you'll just bear with me, being in Christ means this. We have security in Christ. Paul said in Romans 8, there's now therefore no condemnation. Being in Christ means that we are now accepted by God, not separated by God or from God. We have assurance of a resurrection. If we're in Christ and Christ rose from the dead and became the first fruits of resurrection, then we have the promise of a resurrection. If we are in Christ, we have obtained a divine nature. Oh, that's a, that's a big one there. Peter talked about it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you, you and I, we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That's what it means to be in Christ. It's a new position which leads to a a new perspective. But in this position we understand that we are a new creation. New creature. We were an old creature, now we're a new creature. We were an old creation, now we're a new creation. And this is essential for believers. This is essential for the message of the gospel, of salvation, that we're, we're not just recharged, we're regenerated. We did, it, wasn't, it wasn't that you were doing pretty good and God said, I want you to be better. We were dead in trespasses and sin. And now we are alive in Christ. A new creation. If we're going to have the proper perspective of our salvation, of our regeneration, then we need to understand that we are in Christ a new creation. None of that old stuff's hanging around anymore. As a matter of fact, I'm glad I thought about that because he says, old things are passed away. Now here's where we go back to the introduction. We struggle with being separated from the world because we're still in the world, but we're not to be of the world. But we're a new creation, and Paul says through the inspiration of God that old things are passed away. I know you Greek students already understand this, but it's in the aorist tense, this Greek uh, aorist tense where it says, old things are passed away. You're not going to like this, because I heard it preached all my life and I didn't like it. It means a sudden break. This happened instantly. We decide we're done with that. Now, I'm going to be nice to us all. I've heard, in my humble opinion, this mispreached and misrepresented many times in my life. I'm not going to give examples because it'll just stir up some dust. I believe Scripture teaches in that verse, we're a new creation, old things are passed away. When we become a new life, a new creation, there are some things that change instantly. One thing that changes instantly is our perspective. Our opinions somewhat change, but our perspective does change. And he goes on, and I'm glad he explained it to me because I needed help from Paul in this. But the word means that there is a decisive break. And I think it's pretty clear, and I don't want to dig into this too much, that when people truly get saved, truly get born again, and know what happened, which is why it's, it's imperative for preachers and teachers to teach what really happened when you got saved. Yeah. 
When I got saved, 10 years old, I was under conviction. I knew I needed salvation. I knew I was a sinner based on the word of God and I was under conviction and God called me to salvation. I didn't know what I know now. Y'all did? Y'all knew? Y'all? Okay, good, good. I, I was slow to the game. But I had enough spiritual sense because, listen, it wasn't just a change of mind. I was given a new nature. I was made a new creation if I really got saved. And I had just enough Holy Spirit in me to know some of that stuff I was doing wasn't right anymore, even as a 10-year-old criminal. <laughs> there are some things that are decisive, there are breaks. This stops. Does it, make, does it mean that it's easy to stop? No. You can believe that mess all you want. And if it worked for you, great. Use that as your testimony. I'm serious. I mean, some, some of you, you know, people have said, uh, oh, alcoholic, true alcoholic, can't stop, addict, got saved, never had a taste for it anymore. Amen, hallelujah, good for you. But that doesn't happen to everybody. It doesn't. And it's not just addictions like that. It's sin nature. It's flesh that we still deal with. And Paul talks about that. But there are some things that are decisively changed. Our old values have been replaced with new values. Our old priorities replaced with new priorities. Our old beliefs about Jesus are replaced with new beliefs about Jesus. Because before you got saved, whether you liked him or not, you were anti-Christ. You were his enemy. You say, well, I never talked about him bad. You were his enemy. You were under the judgment of sin. And you would pay the penalty for sin. You might have liked the, the, the flannel graph Jesus with the sheep in Sunday school, and you weren't really offended by it. But you were still an enemy of God until you got saved, until you became a new creation. He says, old things passed away, and here's a good one. All things become new. This is where... I believe the text actually teaches that it is a continuation. The Greek there for all things become new or all things are becoming new. They continually become new. How does that flesh out? I got saved at 10, I didn't know a lot. I knew what I needed to know, but by 15, I started growing, hopefully. By 20, I started growing. By 30, I started growing in grace and knowledge of the word of God. And so every time I learned something in scripture, I continued to become new. There are people who sit in church and sleep their self away into whatever oblivion. Some of you are doing it now, and it's not just because New Year's. You do it every Sunday. <laughs> you just started earlier today. And listen, you can get saved, and you cannot know what Scripture teaches about a subject. But when you find out the scripture teaches, see, some people would like to think, well, I became a new creation and now I'm a Bible scholar. That's not how it happens. That's fantasy land. What happens is you're in church. You're in Sunday school. You're in Bible study. You're in Awana. You're in youth. You're in a small group study that talks about the word of God and not about people. And when you learn a subject and you learn that God talked about it, you say, you know what? I used to think this way about that, but now I know I don't have an option. I have to think about it this way. Amen. Makes it easy. Wasn't the teacher that said it. It was God that said it. And so all things are becoming new as I grow in grace and knowledge. Why does Paul tell us? Why does Peter tell us? Continue to grow in grace and knowledge. Because you can be a, I try to use church words when I preach at least. You can be an idiot Christian. How about that? And act and think that you know everything. Don't look at their direction right now. If you just don't, they'll, they'll get offended and then their whole New Year's will be ruined. But a Bible study is not sitting around and tell me what you think about what this scripture means. Oh, oh that, that's always, that's the easy thing to do. Well, I don't know what to do. Let's just go around the room. What do y'all think that verse means? 
And then when somebody gets to what you like, you say, well, you know what? I didn't think that, but that sounds good. I like that one. Now that's my opinion. No, there's only one right answer, and it's what God said, and we all adapt to it. We're a new creation. Old things are passed away. I used to think this. Now that's an old thing. Now I think this. All things are becoming new. We're a new creation. The regenerate position. And this obviously leads, when we have a regenerate position, it leads to a new perspective. As I grow in grace and knowledge, as you grow in grace and knowledge of salvation and what it really means and what really happened, which is why I hate that it's 1157 because he starts talking about reconciliation after this. We've sung about reconciliation and they didn't even know what I was going to preach. Some of the songs actually are in the verse that I was going to read or did read about reconciliation and what God actually did for you and for me. And I really want to get there, but we can't right now. But when a Christian, when a believer, not the 10 year old that got excited and Curtis Parker throws a mic in front of us and tell him what happened. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Not that 10-year-old, but the 25-year-old or the however old you are right now, when, when the word of God is exposed and illuminated and you see that you are dead in your trespasses and sins, not because you're a mean person, but because you were born, that you were headed for hell, not because you had committed a crime, but because you were lost. When you truly understand that you were just minding your own sinful, carnal, on your way to hell business, but God in grace and mercy and love said, hey, I'm calling you to salvation. I'm going to change you and give you a new life and new direction. And you say, well, I didn't do anything. I didn't ask for it. He says, well, I'm going to give it to you because it's the gift of God and you accepted it. And that your unrighteous, headed for hell, worm of a soul became a new creation. And that a perfect, sinless Savior took on your unrighteousness so that you could become righteous. When you understand that, when you grow in grace and knowledge, it starts to change our perspective about who God is. Elizabeth, you didn't even know I was preaching that, but it changes our perspective of who God is and his love and his grace and his mercy. And it also changes the perspective of who I am. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think I'm pretty good. Well, God should have saved me. Did he not know what I could do for his kingdom? No, that's not why he saved me. He saved me because he loved me. He saved me while I was still a sinner. Christ died for me and for you. The message goes on. And here, just because it's New Year's, I have to say this. Our, our job is to share that message, to propagate the gospel, to tell people Jesus truly does save. Would you stand with me? We go to the Lord in prayer. Maybe you want to bow your head, close your eyes. Christians should be praying and certainly thanking God right now for what he's done for us. If you're saved and you know it, Maybe you're a believer and you're struggling with, like many of us, struggling with separating from the world and not just the worldly things, but the worldly thoughts, the worldly opinions. If we're honest, there's a lot of churches, sadly, probably a lot of pastors and leaders who are struggling with trying to appease certain anti-Bible, anti-Christ opinions. And it's a challenge for some. Their desire is to make everybody happy. Maybe their desire is to grow a big church or have a room full of people that don't know up from down spiritually. Maybe you're here today and you're a believer and you know it, but you're struggling with communicating with a friend about what God says about a subject matter. Maybe now would be the time you're praying and asking God to give you boldness, give you courage, 
but at the same time give you love and compassion. Yeah, we're to speak the truth, but we're to speak the truth in love. And that's difficult sometimes. And maybe the believer today would be now praying and asking God to, to help you. And certainly if you're here today and you're lost, maybe the Holy Spirit has convicted you. The word has been preached, you understand. You gotta be born again, you gotta be saved. Have to be a new creation. Maybe today would be the day that you understand that it is the gift of God. Nothing you can do, nothing you can earn, but it's God's gift to you. By grace through faith, and you would trust in Jesus as your Savior today. What a crazy good way to start a new year is with new life in Christ. If you're here today, and that's you, while we pray, while we have a song of invitation, maybe you would call on God. Acknowledge you're a sinner. Believe the message of Jesus. Confess him as Lord of your life. He'll save you. We're just old-fashioned enough here. The altar's always open. If you want to come to an altar, we'll have a, a pastor or someone would pray with you. Father, we thank you for your word that's so clear. I pray that we have new perspective as we grow in grace and knowledge. As we grow closer to you, learn more about you and your word, that it would change our minds. God, we thank you for reminding us of what salvation is. That you've given us a new life. And the old life and the old things are passing away. God, I pray if there's someone here today who's never experienced that new life that you give, I pray today would be the day they call on you for salvation. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.